Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for uh, making it here. We didn't get uh, the snow we expected uh, today. Uh, tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> Never mind. I've been too busy uh, tracking Wendy Murdoch and uh, Steve Bannon on the hill. Um, but, but we're here today uh, to discuss a very important topic, the Iran protests. It's been uh, 19 days uh, for you, uh, for those of you following uh, the topic. Uh, we've seen so far 25 uh, uh, deaths and uh, over 3,700 arrested according to the official uh, numbers coming from Iran. That number could be uh, higher. Uh, we simply don't know. Uh, the protests, since uh, they started uh, on December 28, we've heard many slogans uh, against almost everyone, against the supreme leader, uh, against uh, Iran's uh, president Rouhani, against the country's involvement in many conflicts uh, abroad, uh, against Hezbollah, the IRGC, uh, you name it. Uh, but mostly there was this economic element driving uh, the protests, whether they are uh, in, 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 uh, in the east or, or the south or, or uh, in Tehran. Uh, so I'm sure as you've watched this evolve, uh, nobody predicted this in Washington. Nobody saw it happening. Uh, and as it evolves, we're all trying to make uh, some sense of it to see where it's going, what to what to expect uh, from it. Uh, one thing I've noticed uh, with the discussion, the debate in Washington, it's almost too U.S.-centered. It's what did Trump do right, what did Obama do wrong. It's almost missing the story that it's about Iran. Uh, so in this panel, we're going to try a little bit to, to, to bridge over the U.S.-centric uh, conversation and see what's happening exactly in Iran. What does it mean for the region? What does it mean uh, for the United States? What does it mean for the nuclear uh, deal, for example? Uh, with me is a great uh, group of uh, uh, friends and panelists uh, to discuss this. Uh, from the, I'm going to start from the far left. Uh, Brian uh, Katulis, a senior fellow at the Center of American Progress, and he's a former U.S. official who served both in the White House and uh, the State Department. Uh, to his uh, right is uh, Mike Pregent. You might know he's uh, a senior fellow here at the Hudson uh, Institute. He uh, has 28 years of experience as intelligence uh, officer. He served uh, all over the region, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, and uh, Egypt, among other places. Uh, to his right is uh, Charles uh, Lister. Uh, Charles is uh, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, uh, and uh, he tracks uh, Syria 24 well, maybe 18.7, let's say, 18.7, if you're getting any sleep these days. Charles, he, uh, he also follows Iran's uh, regional activities in the region and uh, inside Syria. To his right is uh, Amri Seren. Uh, Amri is a political blogger. He's uh, also uh, an advisor at the Israel 
uh, project. Uh, so to to start in in uh, to start to kick off the conversation, I'm going to start with introductory statements uh, from from our panelists. Please keep it short. Uh, then we'll go. I'll jump to my own questions, and uh, then we'll go to the audience. And let's try as much to make this a conversation. I will be interrupting uh, even during your introductory statements. So, Amri, why don't we start with you? Uh, thank you for that. Thank you all for coming here uh, on a day that didn't turn out to be as cold as we thought it would. The I think one of the ways to approach what happened last week, what happened in the last two weeks, actually, which is to say the outbreak of the protests just before the new year and then uh, the Trump administration's subsequent reaction is it tried to figure out the questions that Joyce asked, which is what does it mean for U.S. policy and, uh, more specifically, what does it mean for the nuclear deal, is to view it in light of one of the more robust frameworks that this administration has established for its policies, which is the Iran strategy that the president rolled out in October. So the Iran strategy was based on a number of ideas, the overarching idea that the administration had was that the previous administration had gotten things wrong about Iran and that that had led to a very specific policy mistake, which was in their view, in the Obama administration's, in the Trump administration's view, the subordination of everything to the nuclear deal. So that is a framework that they worked on. That's a strategy they worked on for six months. The president rolled it out, and they began to view the region through the lenses provided by that strategy review. It's October. And that's also when the president declined to certify the Iran deal. Fast forward to the end of last year, you have the outbreak of protests. The, outbreak, the protests begin as uh, an out, a economic protest, or rather the eruption, the metastasization, the boiling over of economic protests and economic dissatisfaction that had been sort of simmering for weeks, if not months, that have to do with banks and so on in Iran, but economic dislocation. They quickly become politicized. And that's the first thing that the Trump administration took note of, which is, you know, in their view, all protests are have an economic element, which is to say that you need people who are uh, hungry and disaffected to march in the street, to get a bunch of people marching in the streets. So they don't take it as a uh, particularly interesting facet that these are economic protests. They take it as uh, political protests. Into that, they read a bunch of, they ask a bunch of questions. The first is uh, the propriety of sanctions relief. Remember, the president, when he declined to certify the Iran deal, specifically declined to certify it because he said that the sanctions relief that Iran was getting was not proportioned or appropriate to their behavior. Part of his speech focused on the misuse of those funds. Uh, specifically, they focused on Iran spending its windfall overseas, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, and so on. That was in the president's October speech. The administration looks at the protests in the streets, and they say, we got that one right. Second element. But the, the, then he certified the deal just to... Um... To just you know, no, last, he didn't. No, he, he signed the waiver, essentially keeping the deal in place just last week. That's and, right. And uh, which is a distinct. Former Secretary of State John Kerry also acknowledged, to your point, that some of the funds are going to Iran's uh, terror activities in the region. What he, the wording that he used. That's right. 
the president, so the president declined to certify the deal and then kept in waivers under a different statute that the administration views that as basically a validation. Second thing that they look at, the administration concluded that the distinction between reformers and hardliners is an artificial distinction, that the problem is, quote, unquote, the IRGC regime. They look at protesters marching in the streets, and they say, we got that one right as well. We're on the side of the protesters. So how does that translate as policy? It translates as policy specifically to the protesters and then more broadly when it comes to Iran. With the protesters, this administration believes that the more information the protesters have about regime corruption, the more dissatisfaction there will be. They believe that explicitly in as many words, and they responded to the protests by upping their digital game in terms of getting information into Iran and now, as has become somewhat famous, if not infamous, demanding from American and foreign communications companies that they keep lines of communication open. More broadly, last week we had what Joyce referenced, which is the president's waiver of a series of sanctions, including most prominently the 2012 NDAA sanctions, which are oil and the Central Bank of Iran, or energy and the Central Bank of Iran. And the president said in the statement that he released that this is the last waiver he'll sign. Into that they read a bunch of things about Iran misspending its windfall. And that's basically the framework they're going with. Going forward, politically this gets a little beyond where we are, so I'll just flag it in case it comes up. Politically now we're looking at a congressional fight and a diplomatic fight over whether or not Congress and the Europeans meet the president's demand for four specific fixes of the Iran deal. That's separate from their sanctions thing. So I think that if we understand that as a framework this administration believes that the Iran protests basically were in line with their assessment of Iran, inasmuch as they erupted without warning, that's something that I think everyone would concede, but that they were in line with their assessment. And so they're likely to continue the policy that they rolled out in October. I think that's probably a useful starting framework. So as you probably gathered from Joyce's introduction to me, I want to kind of look at this subject from a little bit more of a regional perspective rather than from an American one or an American perspective looking at the protests in Iran. So coming at this as someone who looks at Syria more than anywhere else, but also Iran's activities elsewhere in the region, if I put my cynics hat on and I try and answer the question, what do the Iran protests tell us about Iran's position in the region now and in the future? What do the protests in Iran tell us about whether we have any opportunities to roll back Iran in the region or even contain it in the region? If I put my cynics hat on, I would say there's nothing that has lent me to believe that we either can or will roll back Iran. And there's little that makes me believe we're capable or willing to contain what Iran is doing in the region. And I'll kind of... We, uh, by we, we being, mean the U.S., the Trump administration, or we just... We being... We, uh, so well, I, I'm speaking in a British accent, but I am American. So we being the U.S. and allies. Um, <laughs> uh, we being the Trump administration now. We also being the Obama administration beforehand. So collectively, really, the last several years. Um, of policy on all of these subjects, not just on Iran specifically, but on Syria, on Iraq, on Yemen, on elsewhere. 
Um, one of my biggest frustrations over the last few years in terms of the Obama administration's policy on Syria, and forgive me, I am going to talk about the U.S. position to begin with, um, was the fact that really what seemed to take place in terms of the Iran deal and all of the negotiations that preceded it was the prioritization of a logic that assumed that by bringing the Iranians into the international community, there would be a long-term benefit of being able to contain and change the behavior of the regime in Tehran, to change its behavior in the rest of the region. But the unacknowledged consequence of that was that in the short to medium term, and this is still playing out now, the consequences of trying to bring the Iranians in and all of the other consequences in terms of the short-term benefits to Iran were, as far as I can see, um, unassailable, irreversible consequences in terms of Iran's medium-term expansionism in the region. And that's why I have the cynics hat on in saying that I don't think there's a great deal we can do to reverse what Iran has had the opportunity to do over the last five years or so. Um, so those short to medium term consequences are as significant as I think you can possibly say. Having said that, if I put my, my, if I put my sort of positive hat on, are there any other opportunities? I think the protests in Iran now, and also to the protests in 2009, as I was talking to Mike earlier, you know, they give us a little bit of a window into the idea that Iran is not necessarily the contiguous, unified, infallible state that some people in the region have always assumed it to be. Um, there are structural weaknesses within the state. There are um, structural uh, inadequacies within the economy. There are areas in which society, from a political, religious, and social point of view, are discontented with the current status quo um, in Iran. And they are unhappy with Iran's, or some people are unhappy with Iran's expansionist tendencies in the region. And I think that is an important reminder that we don't necessarily have an opportunity to roll back dramatically what Iran has done in the region, but we do have openings in which we're now aware that certain sectors of society are deeply unhappy with some of the things that Iran has done. And as Omri was saying, this is... Is this sector... Can, can you elaborate which sectors are unhappy? I mean, the protests have been across, across the board, but do you see more of... I mean, is it in ruler uh, areas more? Is it... Uh, uh, Kurdish Iranians? Is it hardliners? Well, I mean, I don't think it's coming at all from the hardliner portion of the society and certainly not the kind of people who will back the clerical class and back the current, the current status quo. But mm -hmm. I, I, to be honest, my honest opinion is I don't think this is the driving force behind the protests. It wasn't at the beginning. But it's an outspurt from it. There are people who think that spending all of this money in Syria and in Iraq and in Yemen and elsewhere um, ought not to be done given the inadequacies at home. And as, in that sense, to answer your question, I think in a, to a certain extent it spreads across the rural and urban divide. I think in urban areas, I think we've seen it particularly obvious. Um, but the reason why I raise all of this um, is we've made significant mistakes in the previous administration, and I think we're still making the same mistakes, frankly, now. I think the Trump administration speaks a really good game about fighting back against the Iranians. I haven't seen, as someone who watches tw Syria 27, um, or 18-7, if you think, um, any real evidence of Iran being rolled back or contained at all since day one of the Trump administration, despite all of the strong rhetoric. In fact, Iran has grown even more powerful in Syria. It has grown even more powerful in Iraq. It has grown even more powerful in Yemen and Lebanon and elsewhere, and you can make that list as long as you want. So despite all of the strong talk, we need to look at the detail. 
Um, sanctions at the moment don't seem to be having much of an effect. And if they are going to have an effect, it's a very long-term one. And again, we still face the consequences in the short to medium term and whether or not that will re be reversible in the long term. So just to you know, throw out a few ideas on the policy, um, in the, on, on the policy subject, and people can feel free to respond. One thing that has happened in both administrations in, Sy in the Syrian case is that in effect, when we have taken part in either negotiating ceasefires and other arrangements in Syria, or we've taken part in lending legitimacy to ceasefires or other arrangements negotiated by other governments, we have in effect given legitimacy to actors like Hezbollah by acknowledging them not only as partners or actors within a ceasefire, but in some cases as guarantors of that ceasefire. And we've also acknowledged Iran as a guarantor of ceasefires in Syria. So if the Trump administration wants to speak strongly about degrading Iranian expansionism in Syria, I would suggest somewhere to start in, in terms of the Syrian case, it's not acknowledging Hezbollah as a legitimate actor and in some cases as a guarantor of ceasefire arrangements. Um, our policy with regards to the Kurds in Syria and with regards to relationships with Iran, I think, provide a lot of other openings to Russia and Iran to take advantage of what many people see as American ambiguity and thus weakness. Um, I can list all of the different, uh, you know, all of the different examples, and I think in Iraq there are just as many, and it's probably something that I expect Mike will talk on, so I won't necessarily cover that ground. Um, but for the sake of time, I'll stop there. Um, but yeah, I look forward to the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I guess thanks for joining me, actually. Um, so, looking at what happened over the last two weeks, uh, we saw opportunities, and again, we realized that, like 2009. The intelligence community didn't see this coming. Uh, we didn't see this coming, but this is much different than 2009 because this wasn't a uh, reaction to an election. This is a, a reaction to the economic promises that Rouhani said would happen after the JCPOA, and it was a reaction throughout Iran by the Iranian people to protest, to protest the government's inability to have the Iranian people feel the positive effects of, of of contracts with Europe, uh, with the JCPOA, with this windfall that, that the regime received after the JCPOA. But we've got to keep in mind that that $100 billion, that $100 billion to $150 billion, uh, that money was, was frozen because it supported regime actors. It supported weapons proliferators. It supported, or it, it came from human rights abusers. It came from IRGC operatives, their shell companies, uh, freight companies, basically everything in Annex 2 that had nothing to do with the nuclear deal actually reactivated Iran's logistical and terror network. And that seemed to be, at least when we, we put on our different hats and we look at what these protests are about, the Iranian people actually got it. Uh, I look at the IRGC, and this was actually a time where I think the Iranian people were also looking at IRGC adventurism and the regime actually allocating additional monies that should have gone into the economy to destabilize Iraq and Syria and continue to do so also in, in Lebanon and Yemen. So when you, when you look at this from the region, and, and you did a great job talking about Syria, so I'll talk about Iraq. So the United States government, when we look to Iraq and we're engaging the Abadi government, we should be able to say, you know, Prime Minister, is this a country you really want to align yourself with? A country that cannot take care of its people? A country that spends more money to destabilize your country than it does to take care of its own people and its economy? And 
if I were to answer for a body, I would say I can do both. I can uh, court Iran, I can align with Iran, and I can align with you because I've been able to count on you through these two administrations, both the Obama and Trump administration, to hide the fact that we're aligned with Iran, to obfuscate the role of the IRGC in our security forces, our intelligence agencies, and also in our economy. So as we talk about the IRGC and how we're looking to hurt the IRGC and, and basically use sanctions and secondary sanctions to hurt this regime in the IRGC, you look at the companies that European countries are looking to do business with, and then you look at the percentage ownership that the IRGC has in those companies. Well, the IRGC now has those tentacles in Iraq's economy, in its, in its oil economy, in its telecommunications economy, and its reconstruction business economy. So there are things we can do. And again, because we don't ever see this coming, I, I propose that we have a, a package on the bookshelf that you can take off that sanctions the, what were the words you used to describe uh, Khomeini's empire? The supreme leader's personal business empire worth tens of millions of tens of billions of dollars. That the Iranian people were actually asking us to hurt, to be able to tell the Iranian people that upwards of eighty-six billion dollars are controlled by your supreme leader, um, to be able to to go after the besieged. Now, when we talk about the besieged, a lot of people don't, I mean, in Iran, of course they understand, but in America don't understand that the besiege is the most unpopular directorate within the IRGC, and a lot of people back here don't even consider it part of the IRGC. But it is, and it's, it's low-hanging fruit, and it wasn't targeted in this round of sanctions, and I think it should have been. And the reason I say that is because human rights violators like Mohammad Reza Nakhdi, who used to be the besiege commander, was sanctioned under Annex 2 in the JCPOA, or at least was sanctioned for what he did in 2009, yet received sanctions relief under the JCPOA and Annex 2, which makes no sense. Human rights violator gets sanctions relief, and somehow as part of the nuclear deal, another uprising takes place. The besiege again arrests Iranians, put, puts them in prisons, and one of those prisons was sanctioned, and the, uh, the Supreme uh, Judicial the head, of the, the head of Iran's judiciary was sanctioned. Was sanctioned as well. So, so that's a good sign. But again, the besieged commander wasn't. And the besieged are the group that go out and do these things. Qasem Soleimani, as much as he is, a, is, a, is a, uh, an adversary for the United States, is viewed as a hero to a lot of Iranians based on what he does. But the leader of the besieged is not. The leader of the besieged is as unpopular in Iran as he should be in the United States. And we should be able to go after those things. So I, I propose, a, as a policy fix to the next time we don't see one of these protests coming, is to have a sanctions package already set up that, again, we've been able to demonstrate time and time again as the president recertifies the Iran deal or kicks it back for another four months while Europe addresses it, that we can increase sanctions on Iran's ballistic missile capabilities, increase sanctions on companies that are proliferating these items, and individuals, we should be able to do the same with human rights abusers that have nothing to do with the Iran deal and should have never found their, their way into it in Annex 2. And that's something that I think we should have set up. Also, the, the IRIB, you know, the Iranian uh, uh, regime's media outlet that basically, uh, you know, puts out what the regime wants put out and then discredits the protest, that was supposed to be sanctioned, and, and it wasn't. And I think that was low-hanging fruit as well. Um, there are things we should do that will not derail the Iran deal for those people that are supporters of the Iran deal. And there are things we're not doing. And as you talked about wearing many different hats, as a former intelligence officer, we put on a red hat. 
And a red hat is you put on the hat of the enemy. Well, if I was Qasem Soleimani or anybody in the regime, I'm pretty comfortable with what has failed to happen under the Trump administration. Qasem Soleimani was very comfortable after the president's speech October 13th, where the entirety of the IRGC was designated for providing material support to Qasem Soleimani's IRGC Quds Force, yet did nothing when he rolled into Kurdish territories using American tanks and equipment and using militias that our State Department said were not present. We now know that's not true. Um, I, would, I would imagine that Qasem Soleimani is in a good position now looking at the, the lack of a response by the U.S. with these protests and the fact that somehow Iraq has been taken out of the Iran conversation here in Washington, D.C. So even you, you said lack of response, even with the sanctions, with the president's tweets, you don't think the response is? Uh... Well, <laughs> no. Um, not, especially not with the tweets. Um, but, but with the sanctions, again, secondary sanctions is where we, we can hurt Iran. That's where we can, we can uh, disincentivize European investment in Iran. But again, if you look at what, again, Iraq has fallen out of the conversation about Iran in D.C. We are now calling the Iraqi security forces and the Hashid al-Shabi not only a bulwark against ISIS, but a bulwark against Iran in Iraq, and that's just not the case. You just had an example of that with a 38 killed and two twin suicide bombings in Baghdad as ISIS has morphed to the Al-Qaeda model. And uh, you, there was a political article today that we were talking about where General Mattis has, may, may take a different stand towards Iran, but right now he's saying that the land bridge isn't in existence in Iraq, and it is. And, and I, there's a study from the Institute of the Study of War where it lays out the order of battle of the Iraqi security forces and the militias. I plotted them on a map, and I've shared it with several panelists. And I can basically point at any unit along any of those access roads that Iran wants to use and tell you that they will not stand in the way, that they actually have been built to facilitate what Iran wants to do in Iraq. And I'll leave it at that. Great. Um, thank you uh, to Hudson and Michael for, for hosting this. And as Joyce said at the outset, uh, often uh, the Iran debate in this town uh, looks like one of those 1980s beer commercials, less filling or tastes great or Howie Mandel's deal or no deal. Um, and I, I think we have the starting basis of a, what I hope is a textured conversation. I, I have to acknowledge limitations and with humility. And I know you wanted to start out sort of with Iran and the Iranian people. I need to stipulate that I'm a student of that and have learned from others' work. And I feel like uh, the, the Omri's perspective is that there aren't differences between hardliners and reformers. I, my sense is that there's a, probably a lot more texture there. And I'm not certain that we have the, the expertise on the panel to delve as deeply into it. I, we can try. What, what I'll do is give my assessment of a snapshot of where we are in U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran, and then Iran in the region, and then maybe a few things on, on the nuclear deal. And I'll try to be as clinical and analytical about it as possible and foster uh, a conversation. But, but um, so, so my bottom line up front, though, we're about a year into the, the Trump administration. And you should understand, I'm somebody who supported uh, the, the nuclear deal, though thinks it was flawed and can, can be and should be strengthened. Uh, and agree with a lot of what Charles and, and Michael have said about the, the absence of any coherent regional strategy. Uh, my bottom line up front <laughs> is that one year in uh, to the Trump administration, the emperor has no clothes in Trump's Iran policy. Nearly a year after Trump's first 
national security advisor, and we may soon have a third, um, his first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, said, Iran is on notice. I think, in essence, on many uh, of the files and the concerns that we have about Iran, American policy has engaged in passive appeasement uh, of Iran, in, in, in effect. And what I worry about what has happened since October and President Trump's speech is that the U.S. is actually positioned to unilaterally disarm itself and move from a uh, position of, of, of some strength uh, in, the, in the international community and quite a bit of strength in the region um, and, and actually weaken our hand and hand to Iran on a silver platter the things it has desired. Uh, number one, a perfect distraction from their problems at home uh, and the economic problems that drove the protest. Number two, a uh, divided international community and then a divided region, though the region itself, I should say, is <laughs> quite divided in and of itself. But first, really, really quickly, uh, and, and I think the most urgent in the reaction to the protests and the battle for freedom and ideas, and I'll just state it right up front, my view is that this is a generational struggle that a new generation will win. Um, it will win on its own terms inside of Iran, the scler sclerotic, corrupt regime, everything that Omri and everybody else have studied and talked about, will not sustain itself. There's just a new generation uh, that will come to power, and that may sound naive. And, and I'll also argue that I think in many parts of the rest of the Middle East, those structural factors uh, still very much exist. I, I think in that battle of ideas, it is good uh, for the United States to use its voice. I, I didn't understand and was quite mystified about the criticisms of uh, uh, U.S. officials speaking up and, and other things. Um, we should be doing this. I'm glad President Trump talked about freedom. I wish he would do more of that in our own democracy and defense against Russia or in other parts of the Middle East, um, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. This is where we've lost our voice, and it had become muted even before uh, Trump became, uh, came to office. Um, so we need to speak up. We need to expose. We need to give tools to that new generation in Iran through technology uh, so that they, they're informed and that they can connect with each other and, and fight this fight. And it's a much different sort of type of struggle than when I began my career in the, in, in the 1990s working for the National Democratic Institute because of technology and things like this. The other thing we need to do, and this is where I think there's some incongruity and inconsistency, is um, speak with a consistent voice to the Iranian people. When President Trump, in one of his first actions, banned uh, Iranians from, from traveling uh, to the United States, and when I saw uh, a few days ago Nina Shea, a scholar here uh, at Hudson, who we've enjoyed a great working relationship, criticize, uh, I think there's a possibility of uh, 100 or so Iranian, mostly Christians, being sent back uh, to, to Iran in a horribly repressive environment. That, that's deeply worrisome, but it's a consequence, I think, of Trump's overarching strategy. Very, very quickly, and I think this is where I think we may all agree, is that there's a most, the, I think the most pressing priority is a need for a much more coherent, integrated strategy that integrates U.S. Uh, military, diplomatic, economic tools. And I didn't see it in the speech uh, that President Trump actually delivered. I saw a lot of uh, rhetoric and focus on, on the deal itself and where he would like to position it. But uh, there's a huge gap between the, the rhetoric and the actual policy tools. And I heard it from Israeli officials when I was there the week after Trump's speech. Some of my colleagues who were in Baghdad also saw this. They saw Trump uh, rhetoric and bluster, and then they saw what was happening in Kurdistan. 
actually on the ground, and, 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 and we've talked about that. So, so we don't have that, and I think to create that requires uh, a lot that the U.S. certainly right now doesn't have on its team. We still don't have a full bench in the administration. State Department. Uh, the State Department and other things. I think they're, we're playing catch-up, and I think that's an important thing, and I hope we can dive into it. Uh, lastly, on the nuclear deal, I, again, as I said, I think um, I was in favor of it. Um, it has produced um, some benefits, but it has flaws. I'm in favor of a, a long-term strategy relative to the two other things I mentioned, the fight inside of Iran, and what's happening in the region, uh, there's, there's, I think, a bit more time uh, on, on certain issues. And we need to actually go at it with as strong and a cohesive team um, at home and abroad. And this is where I think President Trump, I think, really, uh, I think, walked into this in a very divisive, like he does on every single issue, uh, divide, it's, it's almost like divide and conquer attempt, but it actually ends up divide and defeat, more or less. Uh, troll power, I call it. Um, and, and I think when I look at sort of Democrats and those who are actually conservative and concerned about the deal under Obama, th there would have been a coalition that could have been built, but not in this sort of way. I still think there might be uh, if we're smart about how do we integrate uh, the, the right tools. But I'd close by saying I, I think what to do all of that, what we need is actually sustained resolve and attention. Um, a greater unity, actually, rather than disunity. The use of a full spectrum of tools across uh, uh, the region and, and in a smart way and with an emphasis on a political strategy, diplomatic strategy, uh, but not uh, uh, downgrading sort of the security or, or, or other components to it. And what worries me about it, to sum up, um, in, in year one, heading into year two, is that when you look at sort of the broader uh, Trump administration agenda and you try to figure out where just the Middle East itself, let alone Iran, fits in the broader sense of priorities. And I worry that an administration that has America first as its uh, number one sort of banner uh, has a priority of economic nationalism and possibly starting fights on trade deals and things like this. And I don't, when I connect that with what I see as the lack of bandwidth, the lack of anybody who's actually integrating these tools together, that's what leads me to conclude, and I hope it's not too cynical, I hope I'm wrong, that the emperor has no clothes on, on, Iran's, uh, on the Iran policy for the Trump administration. And I say that to be a little bit provocative, but also I hope to spark uh, a, a discussion about how we can fill the gaps, because I think those gaps are actually quite substantial. All right, well, um, excellent points. I think we're going to have a very vibrant uh, discussion. Uh, but to take you back to, to Iran, uh, to the regime itself, uh, where do you see it? How shaky is the regime? And given where we are in week three now, do you see the protests uh, fizzling out or because the root causes are they will stay there? Maybe as Brian was saying, there is a generational uh, battle going on. Uh, inside Iran. Just give me an outlook, uh, maybe Amri and uh, uh, Brian, on uh, where do you see the protests going and uh, how shaky is, is the regime internally? So we have, all of us, especially in our intel community, have problems assessing where the regime is. Framework, Intel Analysis 101, totalitarian and autocratic regimes are always more shaky then they look from the outside because they get to control the information going outward and less shaky than their rulers think. Again, to us, autocratic regimes always look more stable than they are because we're getting information that they control 
and sociologically our analysts draw their information from areas that the regime can intervene. But leaders of autocratic regimes always, always, always overestimate their own vulnerability because they know they're lying to their population about whatever their underlying ideology is. In the case of the Iran protests, let's not kid ourselves. The side that usually wins is the side that has all the guns. And in the case of the regime of Iran, the regime has all the guns. The way that that's usually overcome by a population is they get the army to flip. If the army flips, in this case, the RGC can intervene. If Even if the RGC flips, the regime can call on use them or lose them foreign Arab militias to come in. And we know that they've used uh, Arab militiamen in the past in 2009. It's very grim. On the other side, the structure, the uh, structural weaknesses of the regime are real. Uh, they're going to be difficult to fix. The regime is ideologically committed to spending money to export the revolution. The regime is dysfunctional and corrupt. Will we have the cycles that we saw in 1979, which is to say protest, funeral, protests around the funerals, and so on? I don't know if that'll be this time, but I agree with Brian. I mean, this is a regime that will collapse under its own weight. The question is whether the policy prescriptions and the way it gets filtered into this town is, is that an argument for backing off or is that an argument for pressuring? And I think the time is uh, now to start squeezing the regime economically, specifically in a way that promotes our underlying message, which is that the regime is corrupt. So for instance, you heard Michael talk about Annex II entities that shouldn't have been given sanctions relief. What is that a reference to? Under the nuclear deal, the deal with the nuclear deal, with the 2015 nuclear deal is everybody pretends that Iran is now on a path to a peaceful nuclear program, which means that all of the people who had been sanctioned for illicit nuclear work get unsanctioned, and then they impose restrictions in order to assure us that, uh, that they're not going back to illicit nuclear work. That's the gamble. The problem is that wasn't enough for the regime. So in mid-2015, and especially in early 2015, and especially mid-2015, Zarif extracted a number of concessions from uh, the American negotiators that, involved, that were characterized at the time, and I think correctly characterized as bribes to the regime to come along. One of them was the delisting of the Central Bank of Iran, which was listed for reasons way in excess of nuclear issues, delisted, given sanctions relief, placed on what's called Annex II. Uh, another one was EIKO, the Supreme Leader's Personal Business Empire, worth tens of billions of dollars. Why? Because it was an easy way to bribe the Office of the Supreme Leader to come on board. Inasmuch as the protesters were in the streets talking about why political corruption and political uh, ideological mismanagement was the root cause of their economic woes. The administration should be going out of its way to expose that corruption. And one easy way to do that is sanction the corrupt entities, because then the people write about why they're being sanctioned, and that's corruption. And that's something that, I mean, I was also surprised that they didn't touch any annex to entity, although the human rights sanctions that they brought down were targeted towards torturers, and uh, institutions that sent, and individuals and entities that are used for censorship. But nevertheless, you know, you can see how that might be, that they might be putting that off to see where the 120-day clock now, the fixes come in. But yes, absolutely. The way to destabilize the regime right now is to focus both substantively and from a messaging perspective 
on the corrupt entities and the human rights abusers that are doing this to the Iranian people? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is I don't uh, think anyone uh, accurately knows, but the structural factors, I think, uh, that are there. And I think what's different about these protests, and people have talked about this compared to 2009, is that they're much more diffuse. They come from a different uh, segment of the population. It seems to have been um, responded to in some sort of very fierce way, like we've seen in the last way. If I were in the government, I would ask our intelligence agencies, what are the tools and who's actually leading the crackdown, and how are they going about doing that to, to, to find out sort of what is the power balance, how is that shifting, because there are, there's power politics in all of these autocratic regimes. Um, and, and I have it on, um, a good, from a good source uh, that, that Ayatollah Khamenei one day will die. Um, it, it will happen. Um, I'm not going to tell you who my source was, but he's not going to be there forever. And you look at the structural demographics and the economic pressures. And the question for me is, is there enough that the US or other outside actors can do to help build more space uh, and give more voice for freedom? We've lost our voice on freedom. And, and I hope it wasn't too glib in terms of what I said about President Trump. I, I think we've lost it here at home. We lost it in both the Democratic and Republican parties. It's a key tool. And it's not just a consequence of what happened in our last election cycle. It is decades of the U.S. underfunding the sorts of tools that actually autocrats like Russia and China are using, Iran is using, to project their own power. And so we're playing catch-up is the main point. And it's coming at a time one year in that the Trump administration and the State Department essentially has gut and cut itself even further. So we were starting from, I think, an already weak position so I support a lot of these things of exposing and naming, um, but do we actually have that capacity? Uh, and it comes back to, do we have the focus and the will uh, as well? And that's where do, I Do you think, the, uh, are we at a uh, turning point for the regime? Can it go back to pre-December uh, 28th? I don't know, it might take months, years, we don't know. But the, the way you're describing this, it's, it's, like, it's a generational Battle. It's a structural uh, problems within within Iran. I mean, do you see this as a pivotal uh, moment in, in Iranian politics? I, I think it could be, but if uh, uh, if there's support to the Iranian people and if we play our hand correctly, and again, I, I fear that actually what the formula that President Trump has started to be, uh, begin to present actually will undercut uh, the protesters. The other thing is prediction is difficult, especially about the future, uh, they say. Um, and I'm somebody who followed Egypt quite a lot. And I would say that I had thought at certain points, Egypt and sort of what had happened and the different competing centers of power that emerged in 2011 to 2013 uh, had moved to some sort of possible point of no return. And what we've seen is actually no. It's actually gone back even worse than before. And how we play our hand, again, isn't as important as the fight uh, for those people on the ground. We should acknowledge that with humility. And it's not all about us. It really is about them. But I do think we need to support the cause of, of freedom and justice in the longer term. And looking at the regional picture, uh, Charles and, uh, uh, and Mike, how much what's happening inside uh, Iran? I mean, the, the, the slogans, uh, death to, to Khamenei, uh, no Gaza, no Lebanon, no Syria. Uh, how much that tie the regime's hands, maybe in Syria or, or, or in Iraq? And if we were going to talk about logistics even, since, since there is 
you know, th this is a protest against uh, funding proxy elements uh, in the region. Will we see less uh, less funding? I, mean, I thought it was interesting that Hezbollah's secretary general is announcing his his salary uh, to to the world. I mean, thirteen hundred dollars. So, so do you see uh, this creating some sort of pressure in Syria or or Iraq on on Iran? I'll go ahead and start. Um, well, if the more media attention that's the more media attention that's given to these these topics uh, could actually help. I mean, you describe something that's known to people that follow the region, but unfortunately isn't talked about, uh, wasn't talked about during these protests. When when we heard the chance that, you know, no more Hezbollah, stop, stop helping Assad, um, stay out of Iraq and Syria and these other places, we're not hearing that amplified in media. So when you talk about Americans losing our democratic voice, I'm surprised at the silence from Europe. Yeah. And then not surprised. Uh, again, the JCPOA uh, was shaped in a way to where it incentivized relationships with, with European investment in Iran without the consequences of having to deal with keeping Iran from a nuclear weapon. The United States assumes all the risks. Europe has the benefits. Again, they're still afraid of our secondary sanctions that we can put in place if they do business with IRGC-owned companies. But these protests are ripe for Democrat support, for Democratic government support, yet we didn't hear that. Equal time was given to regime protests and support of the regime than they were to the actual protests. And I would argue that if, if you do something and the, the price of doing that is death, then your protest is louder than the one that's directed by the government to go out and do something, or you'll be arrested, or you could, you could end up being disappeared. So there are things. So looking at the region, I don't, I don't think so, because while experts look at it, and, and again, I would, I would not call myself an expert, and I, you know, we have people that are from Iran that are experts on a lot of this, but as you look at Iran, we're not hearing this being broadcasted and amplified that you know, will this change what the IRGC is doing in Iraq and Syria? No, not unless we, we amplify it, not unless we do something about it. Again, sanctions aren't, aren't alone. We, we've heard reports in several outlets that Qasem Soleimani is now an authorized target. The United States has said, uh, given the green light for, for Israel to take out Qasem Soleimani. We don't know if that's true, but again, it's not sanctions alone. If you're going to designate an organization as a terrorist organization, and that organization is actually conducting terrorist activities in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and Lebanon, then you should be able to target them as well as to target them with sanctions. There should be things that we do. Again, the JCPOA was sold as it's either this deal or war. And what we've seen is we've seen asymmetrical warfare from Iran since the JCPOA. We've seen them emboldened, empowered. Assad has actually been shored up by the what's happened after the JCPOA. But wouldn't they have been empowered anyway, given the, the other policies in Syria and uh, and Iraq? I mean, as someone who comes from the region, yeah. I don't remember Hezbollah being in Aleppo and uh, in, in, in Iraq, nuclear deal or not. So how much of this is a problem with a nuclear deal, and how much of this is with recurring uh, 
failures. There's an acceleration of what happened after the JCPOA. Yes, those things were already happening, but there was an acceleration. We didn't see Iraqi militias taking part in Syria. We didn't see the ability of the Quds Force to stand up Iraqi. There are three or four brand new IRGC-linked Iraqi militias that stood up since the JCPOA that are paid by the IRGC. And that's something that that Iran is able to do. We talked earlier about the Hezbollah model is what Iran wants to put in place in Iraq, where it has these IRGC-controlled militias that can be deployed by the IRGC. Well, we've seen that. We've seen them deploy Iraqi militias to Syria, even while there were pockets of ISIS fighters yet to be destroyed. Um, the, the irony here is that the Iraqi security forces have now become the gold standard for what the IRGC wants to do with the LAF. The IRGC can now go into the MOD and MOI uh, through the Badakor leadership in both ministries and procure U.S. equipment and actually have access to U.S. funds through the Ministry of Interior. And this is something we're seeing in, with the Lebanese Armed Forces now, that you stand up these institutions, and it sounds good when we talk about it back here, and it should be, it's a, it's a right criticism to, to, to say, what do you guys know about Iran? It, that's right. When, when you actually sit here in D.C. and you say, let's stand up these democratic institutions to curtail what Iran is doing in Lebanon and Iraq, when you, Iran is actually able to exploit those institutions. But if you don't, the, the dilemma is, and we go through this a lot, is if you're not willing to have uh, your own forces or your own presence on the ground, you're going to have to concede to certain realities. So, so what, 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 where, what is the alternative well, then, here I mean, that we are? If we look at Iraq, and we look at Iraq during the surge, we had 160,000 U.S. forces on the ground. We had advisors at every level of the MOI and MOD, yet the IRGC still had influence within the Iraqi security forces and the ministries. So it's, it's not the number of troops that you have on the ground. It's whether or not you're paying attention to what Iran is doing and you're willing to do something about it. We currently have our State Department saying that the Ministry of Interior is not an outlet for, for, for the IRGC. The IRGC cannot use U.S. equipment and, and funding from the Ministry of Interior. And its minister is Qasem al-Araji, a border Corps commander, who was arrested and put in jail by Americans for targeting Americans. And um, it doesn't make any sense. So you have a IRGC-linked, not linked, but founded uh, instrument in the MOI. A, a, the director is actually an IRGC proxy that has access to these things, and our State Department says, no, he doesn't. So it doesn't matter who you have there. You've got to pay attention and do something about it. Charles, in, in, in Syria, do you see what's happening in Iran, uh, curbing uh, funding or other activities for, for Iranian proxies in the country? I mean, straight answer, no, um, for many of the similar reasons Mike said. I mean, Iran has managed, as you say, we had 150, 160,000 troops in Iraq. We had all of the various levels of influence throughout the government, and yet Iran was still able to do what it was doing. And it wasn't necessarily just because we allowed it to. But it's because they play on a different playing field than us. Um, when you choose to play asymmetric warfare against an adversary, us, that plays conventional warfare, you have a whole array of benefits or advantages. When you choose, in the Syrian case, to by and large outsource those asymmetric efforts to non-Iranians, which is largely the case in Syria, 
you have a whole array of additional benefits or advantages. You aren't talking about thousands of Iranian casualties. You're talking about hundreds of Iraqi, Yemeni, Syrian, Lebanese, uh, Afghan, Pakistani casualties, which doesn't have the same effect inside Iran. So, when so you... There has been some wounded and uh, death among uh, you know, Iran's Revolutionary Guard that, that have been uh, reported in, in Iran. Abs absolutely. But when you then look, and this is what I would at least make as an assessment, not as an, uh, an Iran expert, but um, when you then look at the benefit brought through dozens, which we're practically speaking about, dozens of IRGC casualties uh, in the last year or two, for example, and you look at the benefit that that has brought Iran in terms of, essentially, I mean, I met with, um, with a small group of people, Javad Zarif, in the late fall last year, and he said then, I don't understand why you Americans are still talking about pushing back against us in Syria and Iraq. We've already won. Now, of course, you'd expect Javad Zarif to say that, but frankly speaking, he's basically right. Because how can we possibly expect to compete with, in, Syria, in the Syrian case, in my estimation, about 150,000 Shia militiamen, directly or indirectly under Iranian control, when we have 2,000 troops on the ground, maybe 1,500 now that we've withdrawn 500 Marines, um, and a Kurdish-led militia, which is at least attempt, being attempted by Russia to be bought off right now, and facing the potential threat of war with Turkey because of our decision to position them as a border security force, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How can we possibly expect to win? And so this is why I was saying, unfortunately, when I put my cynics hat on the beginning, at the beginning, I don't think there are a great many areas of hope for us in rolling back what we have allowed to already take place. There are things we can do to try and contain further expansionism, but the situation as it is, is pretty dire. And we haven't even, and, and I know you want to ask another question, but perhaps for the rest of the discussion, we haven't even brought up the impact on Israel in terms of the situation in Syria, which is very, very significant. And it's another area where I think both the previous administration and the current administration have failed quite significantly in either deterring it, preventing it, or trying to even roll it back in the future. Financially, though, how much would you estimate it would cost Iran to, to, to sustain its, uh, its operation in Syria? And can you at least see uh, in that, uh, in that you know, uh, place that that could be at least under pressure given the troubles, the economic troubles at home? Yeah. Well, I can't remember a specific number being put out in the past, but I would expect it's probably in the low hundreds of billions since the beginning of the Syrian conflict. But now the problem is they've, you know, to use, to use Zarif's line, we've won. They're not fighting offensively like they were in 2012, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now, it's a, they, the Iranians, as far as Iran is concerned, has entered a period of consolidation in Syria. And that now is seeing the IRGC investing in construction projects in Aleppo. They are investing in telecommunications projects in Damascus and Homs and elsewhere. And that's why I was talking about earlier, although in, in the reverse sense, this short-term, long-term perspective and frame. Iran has invested very heavily in Syria, hasn't suffered a huge amount of Iranian casualties because of its outsourcing, because of its level on, a, on an as, uh, operation on an asymmetric level. But the long or the medium to long-term benefits now, I fear, could be significant enough that even if there is a, a, a sector of society in Iran that opposes these kind of interventionist practices, the regime will still be able to say, but look what we've gained. 
And the long-term benefit of that is that the IRGC only becomes more powerful, more economically powerful. And again, that, that is a, uh, an obstacle to this generational struggle, which I definitely think it is a generational struggle. But frankly speaking, the IRGC people who are fighting in Syria on, in smaller numbers in comparison to foreigners, they're not 60, 70-year-old men like the supreme uh, leader and, 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 and his cohort. They're young men in their late teens and 20s. And they've fought abroad, and they've seen what Iran is capable of doing elsewhere in the region. And that's a dynamic I don't think we should forget either. I don't think we should discount the fact that portions of the youth are divided. This isn't a youth versus old. This isn't a poor versus rich. There is a certain level of complexity there. So you all agree the, the, the dynamic outside Iran, the, the financing and funding proxy uh, militias could continue unchanged, even with the protests inside. It can be changed, but it will continue to be unchanged unless we do something about it. Yeah, and if uh, doing more to expose the cost, I think, is very important. In many ways, I feel like um, what we've seen from the protesters in the past few weeks is a little similar to what we saw here in this country after the 2003 Iraq war really went bad, and we overreached, and there was sort of rancorous debate internally about the overreach and the overstretch. I, th I think it infects and affects uh, President Trump's approach to the Middle East, by the way. I think that, that's what makes me skeptical and say, well, I, I really don't think there's much there besides bluster and diplomatic head fakes because of the legacy of the Iraq War. And I think there may be uh, something similar. Second thing I'd say, though, is that our, par our partners in the region, and by that I mean the Gulf countries and others, and I spent a lot of time uh, talking to them, I don't see from coming from them either uh, a real concerted focused strategy to, to actually compete with Iran on the political and economic levels. Some helpful moves recently, uh, Saudi Arabia sending some envoys and open, opening a consulate here in Iraq. But when you measure it up against the sorts of things that Michael was talking about, a long-term effort by Iran to deeply embed itself in the psyche and in the political actors of Iraq, it seems very superficial. And then when you add to it the different sort of plays that we've seen in Lebanon and other things, it, it just seems to me that there's not as deep of a textured understanding of the power plays in each of these countries and how to really uh, compete. And I think we, we're talking about contain and curtail. Uh, and some of my colleagues have talked about, well, what's, what's also a way to compete against Iran and how our partners can do it. And what I would say is that our, our partners, I think, lack a lot of uh, those, those skills and capabilities as well. Uh, Amri, Brian mentioned the, the visa uh, issue that, you know, Iran being on the list uh, from September for the Trump administration uh, with restrictions on citizens not to, not to come here. Do you think that has uh, undermined the U.S. credibility in, in essentially calling for freedom to the Iranian people when they cannot, they don't have the freedom to flee their own country and come to the U.S.? And do you think... Iran should be removed. Sure. Uh, second question first, Iran should not be removed. The answer to your first question, uh, I mean, listen to how you phrased it, right? So the visa ban prevents freedom-loving Iranians from fleeing the country. Restrictions. Restrictions. No, the regime prevents freedom-loving Iranians from fleeing the country. The problem that we have with Iran is the problem that we have with the other countries that are on the list, which is that they're controlled internally. Uh, and that they export terrorism, and they won't cooperate with us to prevent terrorists from being exported under the cover of travel. Now, would it 
help our messaging a little bit? It probably would, but Brian outlined a number of structural factors that get in the way of our ability to project messages about freedom uh, into Iran. He could go on at length from years at NDI and so on, NDI and so on, about what those structural factors are. I think that they are deeply embedded sociologically and institutionally in this country. We do not invest adequately in the uh, public diplomacy infrastructure that we would need. Uh, a lot of that became politicized. Uh, this is now a conservative talking point, but nevertheless is, I think, a defensible one, that uh, under the last administration, public diplomacy outlets became politicized in ways that, uh, shall we say, that even right-leaning governments in the United States would not have done. Critics point very often to VOA Persia as sort of ground zero for that. But even if none of that was the case, we don't talk about the need or for freedom. Uh, we don't talk about why it's good. The president has incorporated a lot of that into recent speeches. I think that there is a gap between uh, this administration's actions and its uh, rhetoric on that. However, importantly for the context of this conversation, the administration realized that. As soon as the protest broke out, uh, the State Department's Middle East and Iran people and the NSC's Middle East and Iran people explicitly began talking about uh, what do we have, what assets do we have in order to push messages about regime corruption and about uh, the need for freedom into Iran. I don't know what they found, but I expect that they were, uh, at a minimum, dispirited about what they had available. And they wanted a high gear on digital diplomacy. They, uh, the State Department folks talk about the work that they did as soon as the protest broke out to up their game beaming messages in Persian over, over digital platforms into Iran. Is that enough? I don't know. There have been very good critiques leveled over the last, well, since 9-11, of the reach and ability of public diplomacy. I'm not sure that the U.S. federal government still has its arms wrapped around whether public diplomacy is government to people or people to people or soft power or whatever other categories we use when we try to parse this out. There's a lot of institutional confusion. A lot of it has become subsumed under our... Uh, what would broadly be described as our uh, counter-hybrid warfare institutions. So a lot of the people that we were counting on and a lot of the organizations that we were counting on that would have been called upon to be messages about regime corruption, about freedom, about economic liberalization, uh, even about the benefits of westernization, if you go back a couple decades. Those are turned over to missions that have to tasks where the missions have not yet been coherent that were knee-jerk responses to Russian hybrid warfare. We lack the institutions and the capabilities that we need in order to accomplish robust messaging and public diplomacy to the Iranian people. And I think that the visa issue is a drop in an ocean of problems. But you, you would call, I mean, the, the Iranian people brave and uh, taken on their government. At the same time, if dissidents want to flee the country and not die in jails, uh, is, how would they do it now? They would not normally do it by purchasing a commercial ticket to the United States and going through the visa process. That is not the way that dissidents escaping persecution in Iran would normally do it. Uh, and listen, even if it was not to, not, not to go all hard line, the United States has as its first and foremost obligation creating a travel infrastructure 
that keeps terrorists out of the country. That is built on cooperation with countries overseas. The list was not a Muslim ban. It was a ban of countries that refused to cooperate with us in, bi in a bilateral fashion on the people coming into the country. Uh, there's a subtle debate, by the way, that we've been talking about, whether or not the tension between Trump's America First ideology and reaching out to the protesters. I think if you really wanted to get creative and you really wanted to get cute, you could absolutely, absolutely describe the Iranian protest as a call for Iran first. You could say that the protesters are, are rejecting the idea of expenditures overseas on behalf of a regime that they don't see. I think you could make it a populist message, and I think it fits in well with a certain kind, a certain read of the president's worldview. But even if none of that was true, uh, the visa ban is the visa restrictions are important for security reasons, and they don't really matter all that much for messaging. Ryan, uh, do you agree? Do you disagree on, on what should the U.S. be doing with, in regards to the visa ban? And then we will move to uh, Q and A from our audience. Um, I agree that it's only one small piece of. A, a wider puzzle, um, but it's an important one, and, and it matters quite a lot. And I, I cited, and I don't know the actual details of what happened to these people, but who I think were trying to come here or were in Vienna, and they're sent back on planes to a place where they could be uh, persecuted. Uh, we need to protect people like this um, and make, make exceptions and have a much more nimble uh, approach um, um, to that. I, I actually also, on the broader sort of points, I don't know that we fundamentally disagree. I think there's been a misuse of public diplomacy and strategic communications for almost a decade and a half, stretching across two administrations. I think, uh, in some ways, um, uh, I, uh, I think President Bush had the right voice on certain issues, but the incompatibility uh, with his freedom agenda and what we were actually doing uh, was a big problem. I think, uh, and I've written about this before, I think a big flaw in President Obama's approach to the Muslim world was engaging it and framing it as the Muslim world. Um, um, I, as someone who's more uh, liberal, um, believe that it should be engaging sort of these societies, and you know, Joyce, you know, Lebanon and other countries, though there, some may be Muslim majority, not even many or all of those Muslims are, are faithful. So engaging them and trying to instrumentalize sort of a religion in a particular way actually undermines uh, pluralism. <laughs> and and it's, a, you know, it's a convoluted argument, but I think it's important. It doesn't reflect who we are. And my bigger problem, um, and it is being a little cute to say Iran first, is that I actually feel like if you look at what Trump is actually doing as an American here at home, it doesn't actually reflect a lot of our ideals. I mean, I was struck... Uh, not, I'm diverting from Iran, I'll come back to it, that two leading conservative thinkers, uh, former Bush officials, essentially uh, uh, called it as they saw it, that President Trump is a racist. Uh, Peter Weiner and um, Michael Gerson, just in the last 24 hours in columns and things like this. So uh, when we talk about values, I think it's important for us to speak up for Iranians. Uh, it's important to speak up for us and who we are. And the more that we degrade sort of who we are, I think the less sort of attractive will be. And I, I, my, again, my biggest worry is that the first year of Trump on Iran uh, is this gap between rhetoric and reality. And it may actually, and it's a worry, I hope I'm wrong, we come back in a year, I hope, you know, everybody else tells me I'm wrong, that we, Iran will be a mechanism by which the U.S. strategic relevance actually gets, gets lower, <laughs> not higher. And, and it should be the reverse in my view. 
uh, we'll move to Q&A. If you have a question, please uh, wait for the mic, introduce yourself. Uh, let's start over here with the gentleman. Yeah, this is going to go uh, to Omri, only because you brought it up. Um, oh, then I'll kick it over to Michael. <laughs> and you should. <laughs> um, this round of um, protest, as you had said, is driven by the hungry and dissatisfied. And as Joyce has said, it was an economic, economically driven. In 2009, there was another round of protest from an election standpoint, but it was that constituency was primarily uh, middle class and the educated class. Uh, this is two stools of basically of, of what a revolution should begin. We have two legs of a stool that we, we need. What is the third leg? What needs to be done to push this over the edge? Dissatisfied clergy, uh, removal of, uh, of Iraq from the uh, Iranian sphere uh, uh, by a degree of an Alawi or something like that. What do you see as the final, and you had mentioned we need a final push. What do you see as that final push? So there's two ways to get at that. It's an excellent question. Uh, it's, a fl it's a flavor of the question of do these protests go, uh, you know, do they die with a whimper, do they enter cycles? Uh, I'm not a demographic expert on Iranian politics and the factions thereof. I know that structurally they can't do much unless they get uh, they start getting security forces to flip. That's but that's a that's an axiom. That's a truism, right? That doesn't really do much for that doesn't do much for granular analysis. Security forces, not the besiege, right? The no, no. It'll it would start right. So it would start with the It would start with police. Then it would be the interior ministries, the security forces that the interior ministry is able to draw upon. Then, if they start flipping, there has to be a national security council that brings out the besiege and the RGC. But yes, you need to. No one wins unless uh, they have the guns. This isn't going to be a peaceful protest. This isn't going. The regime is not going to go quietly because it doesn't have. There's peaceful revolutions are created by exploiting gaps in ideology where the government claims to speak for everyone. This is a revolutionary regime. This is a regime that has no problem saying that protesters are counter-revolutionaries. That's going to be a violent end. Uh, that's what I would look for. Uh, and then just numbers, cycles of dissatisfaction. You know, one of the things that we appear to have problems with is re reports coming out of rural areas. And uh, there was a couple of reporters that even compared it to the problems with predicting what happened in the 2016 election, which is just sociologically, reporters don't get out of urban areas. And so we have trouble measuring discontent in- I do. What? I, mean, I do. Right. <laughs> but the, 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 report, the reporter's there. Uh, and so I would look for numbers, and I would look for whether or not security forces at any level are flipping, which okay. is why you see so many pictures online of besieged burning their cards, because people want it to be true. We're going to go all the way in the back, please. Henry Hatcher, retired government. Uh, I wondered, you haven't mentioned the impact of the social media on the situation in Iran, the fact that it had to be blocked. And uh, we saw a great deal of many, you know, photos of uh, the rich, uh, the cronies, uh, cronyism in Tehran uh, that have benefited uh, by the situation of uh, expensive wars and uh, uh, nuclear deals and so forth, and well, they indicated chicken is up 40%. Uh, there's a crisis economically. Uh, inflation keeps running, and of course, on top of all that, they have losses at the battlefront in Syria. 
thousands dead. Uh, have they gained anything? The government says they have, but a lot of people in Iran don't feel that way. And I guess they're tired of things. Mike, uh, maybe on social media, and then uh, have they gained anything in Syria? Well, again, again, this is this isn't again. When we when we talk about Iran, we're not criticizing the Iranian people. We're always criticizing the regime and the IRGC. The regime and the IRGC are winning. They do have gains in Iraq and Syria. The people are losing. It's the more we shed light on the fact that the people are losing because of the gains outside of the country, because of the expenditures to support this adventurism that's taking place. That's that's where we can actually maybe add that third leg to the stool you're talking about. And also, as an intelligence community, we need to look at developing go-tos. Who are the people we can work with in Iran if we can help them? And not only the U.S., but our European allies and our Middle Eastern allies. Who are, who are the groups, who are the people, who are the leaders that need our support to be able to keep these things going to, to actually cause change? But again, nobody's covering the protests. We, we had to ask ourselves this morning, are they still going on? And we have to look for them because they're hard to find. And, and they should be broadcasted, and they should be covered. And that's, uh, I think that's a critique of, of Western democracies, that they don't care enough about what's going on, that there's actually a hope that the regime survives so that everything, the status quo is better than what comes after. I mean, but some journalists are not, are not allowed uh, to go roam freely around, uh, around Iran. So th th that does right. present a problem. And I think his question is, in a sense, we're seeing more uh, protesters with cell phones and, uh, you know, smartphones now, and that has, that has changed in, in, in 2009. Does that make it harder uh, for the regime to, to restrict uh, flow of information? Telegram and Twitter should never, should never uh, acquiesce to the regime and uh, regional partners. Iran actually put out a threat to its regional uh, neighbors don't support the protests. Do not expand your internet to cover what they're doing. And that's exactly what they should be doing. And that's exactly what we should be uh, promoting and helping and, and standing behind countries that do that. Again, the freedom of information should, should be able to get out. And uh, then you have the regime say, well, that's from the MEK or that's from the NCRI, so that doesn't count. That's from the Kurds, so that doesn't count. Uh, that's from this group, so that doesn't count. It, it all counts. We, we, we take a look at who delivered the message and discount it. Uh, and this was prominent in Iraq, where if a Sunni said a Shia official was doing something wrong, we discounted it, because Sunnis say that about Shia officials. We were looking for the smoking gun. It had to be a Shia saying it about a Shia or a Sunni saying it about a, Sh a Sunni in order for it to count. So we need to pay attention to what we're looking at and less about how we got it. If, I mean, just one thing. For, uh, I think you said there's a hope that the regime might uh, survive among some. I, I actually would dispute that. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I think you're wrong. I actually, but I wanted to, I think it's more of indifference. And this is one of the things I, when I started following Charles' work, actually, in Syria, was when I thought the, the, the sort of collective shoulder shrug and sort of hands up in the air about Syria in this town under the Obama administration, masquerading as strategic thinking and like, oh, we're going to contain the crisis and we're going to use tourniquets and, you know, and this delusional, I mean, absolutely delusional when you look back on it. Um, it was in front of our faces. And I, I think, why was that? It was not because people wanted Assad to win. What I think in, the, in this era for the Middle East and for Iran and things like this is just the shoulder shrug, the indifference, because it doesn't, for whatever reason, 
animate American public uh, debate. I, I, maybe there's a few people rooting for Khamenei, but I think it's more of an well, indifference uh, factor. I mean, you and I talked about this uh, yeah. before when I, I mentioned this. So why, why is it that there are Obama loyalists that are so tied to the JCPOA and will not criticize the regime? And I think it's, it's an art form that, that former President Obama was able to somehow make it to where if you criticize the Iranian regime, somehow you're criticizing his engagement with it. And you see that from our media, and you see that with a lot of Americans that, that spoke up saying that President Trump shouldn't say anything. Yeah. Senator Kennedy said, or uh, Senator, uh, Secretary Kerry said, Trump shouldn't say anything. Well, Obama's silence was deafening in 2009. Mm -hmm. And, it, it, and it, you know, I went to a U2 concert right after the Green Revolution. And when, when U2 played the song um, Sunday Bloody Sunday, it was to the Green Revolution. They had banners up, and they had the victims of the besiege that they were showing, there isn't that sense of, of covering this this time yeah. because this dynamic. We talked about this, yeah. about how somehow the JCPOA is tied to the president's legacy. Therefore, if you criticize the regime, you're somehow being disloyal. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I find that in, in political commentary. I find it, that in the media. Was it about the JCPOA in 2009, or was it more eyeing a... Uh, an opening with with Iran and, and talking to them because the secret negotiations yeah. didn't start in Oman till uh, 2011. So, so I was in Baghdad in 2009, uh, and we were watching the Green Revolution uh, appear before our eyes. And at the same time, we were releasing IRGC proxies from U.S. detention, and we were wondering why. And this goes back to what you're talking about: the secret negotiations between the Obama administration and the regime. The regime was looking for overtures. The regime was looking for signs that Obama was serious. And we started to see the release of individuals that would not have been released, like Doc Duke from Lebanese Hezbollah that was in US detention, Case Kazali and Laith Kazali. But before that, we had these IRGC proxies that were in these, these militias that had killed Americans, killed Iraqis, killed politicians, that any time Prime Minister Maliki's Office of uh, Intelligence or the Office uh, the chief commander-in-chief, officer of the commander-in-chief would ask for. His name was al-Basri. And al-Basri would ask for an individual, and we'd release him. And we voted no, because we had a vote. Mm. We said, we'll return to violence, do not release. Yet all these individuals are being released. And, and we saw this as a, as now that you look at the Iran deal now, you look back, and these were the overtures the regime was looking for. And this has continued. So the release happened get green light from Washington? How does it happen? Where yeah, so in 2007 and eight, when we rolled these individuals up, um, I was in Iraq from 05 to 10, working these issues um, in, in the embassy, working with General Petraeus and General Orierno. And these individuals, at the time we said, we will never release in the, these individuals because they have American blood on their hands. And even had some prominent members of the Bush administration, and also I think this is, I can actually attribute this to, to well, there were some members of the National Security Council that said, if we release these individuals, I'll resign my post because we've lost the war. And we started seeing that happen. In 2009 and 10, when General Orierno took, took over and Maliki was running for re-election, nobody thought Maliki could win. Malawi was supposed to win this. Nobody thought Maliki was going to win. And we started seeing Qasem Soleimani play a role. And people coming to General Orierno and saying, can you do something about this? Can you get in the way? Allah was supposed to be the prime minister. And Oriano said in that meeting, uh, I've been told to take my hands off. 
you know, to allow what's going to happen to happen. And uh, yeah, it's there. There are signs. All you have to do is look back to our actions after the surge, and you saw the dismantling of a 90,000-man Sunni security initiative that decimated Al Qaeda and held security in the areas that ISIS took over in 2014. It went away, and all the effective Kurdish and Sunni commanders were exited from the Iraqi security forces. And now we have the same thing happening again. We've simply reset the conditions for ISIS in Iraq, and I would argue in, in Syria with this. And I think Iran's perfectly comfortable with that, as long as they are in the Sunni areas, as long as they don't affect Shia strategic interests. To the question, what has Iran gained in Syria? Yeah, that, and I just want to touch on the social media thing as well, because I think an important point is Russia shouldn't underestimate the extent to which Iran has developed its own specialties in monitoring the use of social media and cracking down on discontent and, and, and you know, socio-political instability. One of the interesting things from the Syrian perspective is in early 2011, when the protests started in Syria, um, Syrian, uh, Syria's four intelligence apparatuses and its police force were basically um, incompetent in terms of uh, monitoring uh, social media use, and particularly in that case, Facebook's uh, value in coordinating protests. And there are lots of funny stories I've heard from Syrians who were arrested at the time by Syrian military intelligence officers who would say, where is your Facebook? I mean, they literally didn't actually, some of them realized that it was something on the internet. They thought it was something that you could literally reveal in the room. Um, but what happened at that very early point was Iranian, the Iranians were brought in as specialists and they very rapidly brought in um, more sophisticated monitoring technology, and that was when the regime began to be able to have a little bit more intelligence about what was going on on the internet scene. So we shouldn't underestimate domestically in Iran how powerful, or how much more powerful perhaps, the Iranians have become since 2011, especially given how much they will have learned in Syria since um, uh, 2011. So there's that point. And on whether or not they've gained something, absolutely. I mean, the Iranians have won the biggest dream they could ever have had for the region. They now do have have a land bridge spanning Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus to the Mediterranean. They have managed to re-evolve or um, re-expand Hezbollah as a regional force, not necessarily with regional popularity, but a force now that has, in my view, irreversible influence in terms of being an Iranian proxy in the region. Um, at, when I said earlier in one of the other uh, comments that the IRGC now is putting out large-scale um, investment projects across Syria, that's another example for you for how much the uh, Iranians have gained, and particularly the current regime has gained mm -hmm. in Syria. And the last thing I would say again is the Israeli example, which, as I say, we haven't really discussed yet. But you now have Hassan Nasrallah and people within the IRGC and the Quds Force saying that if and whenever there is a next war with Israel, we won't just be fighting it on the northern front from Lebanon, but most importantly, we'll be fighting it on the southern front from Syria. Not only is that the case, not only will just Hezbollah be fighting against Israel, but now there'll be a tens of thousands strong ground force based permanently in Syria that Israelis will tell you behind the scenes they fear now is capable of at least temporarily capturing territory across the Golan Heights. That sets off a huge domestic political crisis within Israel if some of that territory is even temporarily lost. So if, has Iran gained from Syria? Unquestionably, yes. We're, uh, we're running a little bit short on time, so why don't we take the three questions uh, at once and then try to remember them and direct them to our panelists. The lady in the back, then the gentleman, and then the gentleman who's been patiently waiting. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Elise Goss-Alexander with the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. You 
mentioned earlier a little bit about some of the regional conflicts that are affected by these dynamics. I was wondering if you, if any of you wanted to speak a little bit more about current policy um, dynamics within the Yemeni conflict. Okay, next question. I think he left, but okay. Uh, can we take? Uh... Hi, I'm Mike Kraft, former State Department Counterterrorism Office. Um, I want to bring up, get back to the issue of, of regime stability. I see that supporters of the MEK are now beating the drums that the MEK can help uh, regi re regime change. As you all know, they were put on the list by the State Department for it, uh, back in October 97, but they were taken off a couple of years ago. Uh, some people say that the MEK is really hated in, in, in Iran. I'd like to get your assessment of whether they really play any significant role. Excellent. Okay, so we have the MEK and uh, the dynamics uh, in, in, in Yemen. Um, maybe the MEK... We, we all had a chance to go to Saudi Arabia and look at what uh, the Saudis were doing in Yemen when it comes to their humanitarian efforts and also their targeting process. And, of course, we all went as, as skeptics. Um, so we still have to see more in order to be able to address what, what's going on, I would say, at least from my standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think the Yemen war has been... Um, a disaster. I think it's important uh, the the news that came out from the UN panel of experts about the source over the weekend of missiles, and we have to be clear um, that Saudi territory has been attacked from Yemen, uh, and like everything in the Middle East, there's ten sides to every story, but there is uh, a definite threat and a very strong threat perception. I've been going to Saudi Arabia quite a lot the last couple of years, trying to understand uh, what their strategy is that links military moves with any figment of a process for long-term stabilization that produces something that makes them feel secure and also addresses their concerns about Iran. I don't see that quite yet at all. And I don't see uh, any moves on the part of the current administration nor under the Obama administration to, to use U.S. leverage. And I've written uh, about this quite a lot. I mean that in a positive sense and then perhaps more in a negative sense as well, to shape and influence the actions of our partners like Saudi Arabia. Um, and I say that in, in a way to, you know, uh, partners help partners help, help each other in a sense. And I feel like the, the current course in the last couple of years is an absolute disaster um, uh, for the Yemeni people first and foremost, but hasn't been great for the regional actors as well. And uh, the last point is that I think this is a feature of the dynamic, the structural sort of uh, framework of the regional security environment right now, where larger, more cohesive countries uh, are, are playing at their battles in weaker, more divided countries. We've seen it for a decade plus now. And Yemen isn't as high on the, our debate as it should be. And, and I think the US using its leverage with partners like Saudi Arabia to force them to sort of map out what is the long-term plan here and do it in such a way that actually addresses their concerns about Iran and Hezbollah and other things. And that's, again, a piece of this broader compete, counter Iran, where I don't even think um, President Trump's speech in October addressed. Uh, and if one wanted to have that strategy, it certainly needs to be a key, key component of it. And, uh Charles, very quickly, and then Amri on uh, MEK. Sure. Yeah, just on, Yemen, on, on the Yemen war, I think from a U.S. and allied perspective, 
And from a humanitarian perspective, the war has been a complete disaster. I think from an Iranian perspective, there was a long time in which we were hearing a lot of stories and a lot of claims um, from Saudi and elsewhere that the Iranians were already there. They were already driving everything. I was actually quite skeptical about that, and I think some of that has been drawn out since. But the Iranians have undoubtedly acquired more influence and are driving things more now than they ever were before. And I think in that respect, again, it's probably an opportunity lost to contain and cease and stop a conflict before it gets to this kind of point where the Iranians, if we're talking about Iran here, are able to find an opportunity that they didn't have before. So I do think that's, that's important context. Um, I just wanted to really quickly, like, just make a little, tell a little anecdote here when, about the broader US policy perspective in terms of pushing back the Iranians. And one thing that I was quite surprised no one really brought up yet here. But when you have um, the director of the CIA come out in public and say that he dispatched a CIA officer to eastern Syria to give a letter to Qasem Soleimani, which, as far as I understand, was trying to ask for assurances that he wouldn't be attacking American troops in Iraq. And Qasem Soleimani comes out of that meeting alive find it very hard to understand how we can still sit here and talk he about it. He didn't open the letter, right? No, it, was, of course. it was given to a messenger to give it to... Well, the, as far as I understand, understand it, our officer got extremely close, if not up face-to-face, -to, -face to, to Soleimani himself, as far as what I was told anyway. Um, if that story is true, which you assume coming from the director of the CIA it is, um, keep that story in mind when you hear political figures within the administration simultaneously talking about how determined we are to roll back the Iranians, when the chief architect of Iran's expansionism was basically given a letter by our own intelligence service asking him not to attack our forces in Iraq. Just, I, I just think that's an extremely important anecdote to keep in mind when you hear all of the political statements coming from the White House and elsewhere these days. Amri. Yeah, I'm going to answer the MEK question in an annoying structural way, which is that it depends on what you think about what Michael said about the importance of messengers in distributing information, which is quite literally as open a question as we have in communication and strategic communication. If you think the messenger matters, then uh, MEK information is of limited utility inside of Iran. If you think that uh, the message is as important or more important than the messenger, then the MEK's infrastructure for getting information in and out of areas of Iran that we can't reach becomes incredibly important. It's an open question. There are legitimate disagreements over it. I think that, I think that we would benefit if, the, if more elements inside of, our political, inside of our public diplomacy were asking those questions in those terms. But the question, the MEK undoubtedly has inf communications infrastructure. Whether it matters or not depends on what you think about the messenger versus message. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you think regime change will be brought about by evidence of corruption and mismanagement, then that's the question. MEK can expose that. Are they the right messenger or wrong messenger, and does that question matter? Those are open questions, and those are questions that are evolving. And the Trump administration has not actually brought up regime change in, in Iran, which I thought is very interesting. There, Tillerson got close-ish by talking about the regime. Can I say one thing, just kind of wrap up on, on this? Um, so, so I looked at the markings from the Scud missiles as well. We received a brief from the National Security Council. They gave us some, uh, a released, uh, basically unclassified version of what happened. So I, I would say that there is evidence that Iran is supplying these, these rockets to the Houthis. We know they're doing financial ties. That's the one point. But again, I'm, I, I want to look at the, the other evidence that people are talking about. Um, with regards to 
Saudi targeting in Yemen, uh, we, we looked at their targeting process, and it's easy to criticize what the Saudis are doing in Yemen, but as Americans, we have to look at what we did in Mosul. There's an article that you sent me where we basically allowed Iraqi Shia militia members to drop, to, to, to call in five sorties of U.S. aircraft and drop five 500-pound bombs on, on ISIS sniper positions. When the when the ISIS to to you to a civilian ratio was one ISIS fighter to 60 to 100 civilians. So when we look at what has happened in Yemen, and, and we actually had, saw a, uh, a U, UAV strike on something in Yemen while we were in Saudi Arabia, the, the target was by itself. You could literally look at what we have done in Mosul and other places and question our own targeting process. I just leave it at that. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Brian, Mike, okay. Charles, and Amri. This was uh, a yeah, great, great discussion. Group. Thank you. Hope to be back in warmer weather and we'll continue do, uh, this conversation.